Well, we are uh, beginning the last chapter of James this morning, James chapter 5. And as we do so, I would uh, ask of us this morning, uh, if we could each in, uh, envision or picture in our, in our brains uh, some experience we've had with luxury, um, some, whether it was uh, something we went and enjoyed seeing somewhere else, something we've experienced in our own life, but some experience with luxury. I remember I, um, that first time I uh, walked up and down Rodeo Boulevard in Beverly Hills, and I, uh, I had never seen so many Bentleys and Lamborghinis and Ferraris and all the stores with all the shiny stuff in it. And um, So do you have your picture of luxury? All right, now if you would, uh, picture in your mind's eye uh, some personal experience you've had with poverty. Um, may, maybe it's uh, in the home in which you grew up, or may, maybe it's just even this past month or in, in your own life. Or may, maybe you watched a documentary or, or you went on a mission trip and you saw something. I remember a time I was on a mission trip and I was outside of Durban, South Africa, and we were in a squatter camp and just thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people just living in abject poverty. All right, so we have this picture of luxury, and we have this picture of poverty. And, and it helps to illustrate that in this world, there is disparity. That there are some uh, in this world that, that have so much more exposure and opportunity for luxury and there are some in this world who are confined within poverty. And between the two is disparity. Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Wealth, poverty, and disparity. Um, now, this is a hot topic, granted. And, and we know that even in the midst of our current election season that that this is um, uh, playing a significant role in some of the national discourse and in how uh, one candidate might say things about the other candidate with regard to policies and approaches and values. And, and the other candidate then says things back. And, and we know that this is right and center in our culture right now. Well, it was important to James. So James, in the midst of his own culture, spoke about wealth and poverty and disparity. And we've even covered some of those passages already. Last week, we found James talking to Christians, and there, there was a group of Christians that he was writing to that, that were of a merchant class, and they, they had a, uh, uh, um, enough money to be able to go and travel, but they were, it was causing them to have a sense of personal autonomy, uh, uh, that they could make their own decisions, live their own life, that they really didn't need God, uh, that they were kind of their, in some ways, their own gods. And so he was calling them back, wait a minute, watch the arrogance. The best thing we could ever do, the best life we could ever have is this active dependence, full dependence on God. Well, in the passage we're going to look at today, verses um, 1 through 6 of chapter 5, um, the uh, large number of scholars uh, understand that this part of the text is uh, speaking about non-Christians. So at the end of chapter 4, it's to some rich Christians, and here there's going to be a word about non-Christians who are wealthy. 
There's no exhortation in the passage. There's no call to repentance. It's just a straight-up condemnation. So how are we going to approach this text then? Maybe even already right now you're going, oh, here goes the pastor again about money. Or, or maybe you start having that feeling of the sweaty palms and going, oh, I'm a little anxious about this conversation. I don't know. Uh, what's he going to say? Or I already feel guilty. They're going to make me feel guilty today. What if we just came to this passage with a sense of humility? We know that God loves us. We know that God loves. God so loves that he sent Jesus into this world. Um, that through Jesus we would have this wonderful access to God. God loves you. And we get to love God in return. That's the joy of knowing God. So we get to love God in return. It's this love relationship. And so what if we entered this time with that sense of God massively loves us. And it's our desire to massively love God in response with that kind of humility and openness and generosity of spirit, we can keep our ears open, our minds open to see what God would have us understand as we go through our time. All right, so with all those things in mind and with the uh, uh, little reminder that things you probably already know is that I have a lot to learn in this area. Uh, I come as a learner to this passage as well and um, I, we're not here to solve all the economic issues, but we are here to learn from God in His Word. All right, let's open up James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. We'll put it on the screen as well. Hear the Word of God. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts." You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Wow. May God add his blessing to the reading of this word, and may God bless our time together as well. All right, so here's what we're going to do today uh, to work our way through our time and, our, and, and to uh, trust that God's going to work at understanding. What I first want us to do is let's look at the passage itself. Let's look at James 5, 1 through 6. Let's get the meaning of what's going on there. Then let's pull back a little bit. Let's pull back and ask the question, why would James include this text? If he's writing a bunch of Christians, why does he include this part of the passage uh, that really focuses on non-Christians. Um, and then let's pull back even farther. And before we're done, let's, let's just look at the, concept of, uh, the concepts of wealth, poverty, and disparity. All right, so uh, with that in mind, let's jump into the text. Um, uh, 
Dr. Mood, uh, in his commentary on this passage, lays out this really wonderful, concise description of what's going on in the text. He says that there's this condemnation uh, followed by a list of, uh, of four uh, reasons why the condemnation is in place. So in the con- condemnation, we get it in verse 1. And James writes, hey, hey, you rich, come on now, come now, pay attention. Uh, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming. So who are the rich? In James's time, there uh, were landowners, these wealthy landowners. Uh, in fact, the writings about these landowners are all over the Old Testament. They're all over Jewish writings of the intertestamental time and even during the first century. In fact, the broader Greco-Roman world would have writings about the choices of these ultra-rich landowners. They would acquire more and more land. They would, their wealth would allow them to um, gain more access to wealth. And then in the process, they would exploit the workers. And so God, through James's writing, says, weep and wail because there's misery coming your direction, judgment. And so then in support of this, uh, there are these four descriptors. And the way that Dr. Mu puts it, he puts, says that they pursued um, wealth for selfish gain. And we can find that in verses 2 and 3. They pursued wealth for selfish gain. We read this, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. And the description is they have all these things. They've acquired extra garments. They've acquired all this gold, all this resource. But even now, that's working against them. What they thought would be the treasures to hold on to in God's economy, in God's broader economy, even these things are working against them. They pursued wealth for selfish gain. The second thing is that they defrauded their workers. We find it in verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Back in the day that um, the large majority of people, the, the masses of people really lived day to day. It wasn't just month to month. They were living day to day. And to, and to get the wages at the end of a day was important because you were able to buy food for yourself and for your family. And, and so to withhold a wage for even a day would put an individual or a family at risk of not having the resources that they would need in that moment. And so not only were they gaining wealth for selfish reasons, for selfish gain, They were also defrauding the workers in the process. And the third reason then is that they lived self-indulgent lives. They lived self-indulgently. Here's how we find it in verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And finally then, they oppressed the righteous. They They oppressed the righteous person. That, that in their choices, that they were really taking it out. 
there was a, 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 a cost, a price being paid, but it wasn't by them. It was by the people on whose back that they had gained their wealth. And so the conclusion then, the condemnation is weep and wail for misery is coming. Okay. So let's pull back. Let's pull back. Here's this, this condemnation text. And some of us might say, well, gosh, it feels so much more Old Testament than New Testament. And yet, it's in the New Testament. It's, it's written to us by Jesus' brother. We know that this is Scripture, so it's inspired by God, that it's God-breathed. Why would James include this in his letter? Now, we, we, we don't have... Uh, access to uh, all of James's motivations. So we have to think about why would he have included this? What role can it play? And I think one of the things we can identify right out at the beginning, the passage serves as a sin identifier. The passage serves as a sin identifier. In, in some ways, James is speaking truth to power. And, and what he's saying is pursuing and accumulating wealth for selfish gain at the expense of others is sin. Pursuing wealth. Pursuing wealth and accumulating uh, wealth for selfish gain and at the expense of others is sin. You know, it would probably uh, benefit us for us just to make sure we're cognizant of some, to some statistics in our own country to, to see if, if this might even be a, a helpful passage for our, ourselves in, in, in our context. And so uh, there was a, a piece on Forbes.com, and they were quoting from uh, the federal statistics that came out, and this is as recent as just uh, uh, a couple weeks ago. In, according to the federal data, the top 1% of Americans have, combined, have a combined net worth worth of $34 trillion. $34 trillion. And the bottom 50% have a combined, combined net worth of $2 trillion. That means that the top 1%, that their wealth is 15 times more than the bottom 50%. Okay. All right, so that's descriptive. What's the problem? Where, where, where might the problem come in? Well, if we continue to look at other statistics, and this is according to uh, the website census.gov, so the, uh, the U.S. Census, uh, and this was posted on September 15th, there are 26 million Americans without health insurance. Now, I'm not trying to take a political position here. I'm not trying to, what I'm trying to show is a description of the context in which we live, where, where we've got 34 trillion in 1% of the population. We have, we have 2 trillion in the bottom 50% of the population, and there's 26 million people without health insurance. According to um, uh, feedingamerica.org, there are 54 million people at risk of food insecurity currently. That, that number, that 54 million of people at food insecurity risk includes 18 million children. All that's to say is we might want to pay attention. We might want to pay attention. To, um, uh, you know when you're driving and there are those caution signs? Uh, sometimes we might think that those are more like suggestions, like, eh, 
If you feel like it, you might want to slow down around this corner. Some of us go, oh, a corner. Let's gun it. It'll be so much more fun. And yet the caution sign is there. So there are caution signs that say falling rock or, or speed bump ahead or, or, or dip. And you want to be aware of this as you go forward because there are consequences if we don't pay attention to the caution signs. And so if this passage serves as a sin identifier, it could be a caution sign to people all over the globe at any given time. There are things about wealth that we better be paying attention to. All right, so it serves as a sin identifier. Let's look at the second possible reason here. The passage serves as an envy killer. Uh, Calvin, in his commentary, says as much. He doesn't use the term envy killer. Um, but if you think about it, that in this, uh, the experience of being able to read through this, that, that um, there can be this temptation to look at wealth and, and the wealthy and go, I wish that were me. I wish I had. Uh, and this passage sets it up of, wait a minute, you may not want to have that. From God's perspective, there's a whole different way to look upon wealth. Here's this passage from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Listen, listen to this. This is, again, God's perspective on wealth. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. When I was growing up, we lived close by a, a Six Flags park. And, and so we would go and go to the park and, and hang out with friends and go on rides and stuff like that. Um, so whenever I'm in amusement parks and, and I, I, I consider going on the, the log ride, I, I have this way, and I learned it back when I was going to Six Flags. You go and you look at the people coming off the log ride, and you discern how wet are they? And that helps you understand whether you want to actually get on the ride. By the way, I'm also, I get a little motion sickness. I get a little car sick. Like that's just part of the way my inner ear works and my eyesight and everything. So I also look at rides and I see people having all kinds of fun and I think about it, but then I look at people getting off the ride. And if they're looking a little green, a little wobbly, I go, that's not a ride for me. In the same way here that this envy killer, James is helping us to understand, look how this turns out. Look how this turns out. It can be so common in our world to envy what other people have and we don't have. And, and James is underscoring, listen, there are consequences at, at work here. All right, so let's go to the third reason, possible reason. Uh, this passage serves as a hope builder. A hope builder. In a world economy, we might go, listen, they're the, they're the haves and we're the have-nots, and so they must be the, the winners and we must be the losers. And, and in God's design, in God's revelation of his heart, God's economy, he's reminding us that, that just because in this world we value things a certain way, in God's economy, the values are so different. And so he can build up hope that... God honors submission, and God honors dependence upon him. 
the passage can also serve as a life changer. A life changer. Yes, James writes this passage, this letter to a group of Christians, but people talk. The word gets out. And maybe even for the non-Christian, the the non-Christian landowner, maybe God would use a passage like this to, to wake somebody up. But even as Christians, this this passage can serve as a life changer for us. It can speak into our lives and help us understand. Take, again, we were just in 1 Timothy 6. Listen to these verses. This is further down in the chapter. It says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Maybe a passage like this serves to help those of us who follow Jesus Christ and have access to wealth, who have wealth in our lives, that it can be a life-changing passage for us. If that's the possibility of what this passage could serve, now we're going to step back even a bit more, even a bit more. In, in what are some things that through James's teaching, through teaching in Scripture, that we might be able to say then about wealth, poverty, and disparity. Now, those of you who know me and or have read my bio online, you know I don't have a degree in economics, and, and so I'm not here to talk about economic theory. Um, what we want to do this morning is, what does God reveal? What does God teach in the midst of this world that He wants us to understand from His perspective? Well, I think there's three things that we're going to pick up on this morning. The first is this, that there is a theological or spiritual significance to our income bracket. There's a theological or spiritual significance to our income bracket. Listen to these passages. This is from um, Luke, Luke chapter 6. This is what Jesus said. He said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And he goes on, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now for you shall mourn and weep. There's nothing sinful about being rich. Nor is a poor person naturally good. But there's a theological consequence to being rich and a theological consequence to being poor. Because you see, it's the relationship that we have with our wealth 
in the relationships that we have around us that matter. And so welfare of others matters. And so, therefore, disparity matters. You see, in God's mind, wealth comes with increased responsibility, and wealth comes with additional temptation. Um, I, I would imagine, not that you don't have to raise your hands, but I would imagine there's a number of firstborn in this room. And there's been quite a bit of study in terms of uh, order of birth. And, and we know that there's exceptions to this. So, um, but when we look at that, uh, that, um, that insight, oftentimes the firstborn has this added responsibility on them. I remember growing up and, and we had various things take place in our lives. And, but my brother, uh, Mike, who's 18 months older than I am, consistent, consistently played the role of uh, a caretaker. Even when we were out just playing around and, and riding bikes, uh, um, Mike would always have that extra eye of, hey, I think we need to go in, or hey, we better... And he was caretaking. It just, it's something that came along with being the firstborn in our family. He didn't ask for it. He didn't go, hey, I'd like to apply for the job of keeping an extra eye on my brother. But I know for me that there were very few times that I had to keep, or I felt like it was my job to keep an eye on Mike. But Mike kept an eye on me. It came with his role. It seems that in God's economy that, that a theological significance of wealth is this caring for others, that, that once we cover, once we cover what our needs are, and whatever we have above our needs, that there's a responsibility with this, with this additional wealth to be a part of God's larger community, to care for others. There is a, um, a, a, a film we like to watch. We'll put it on every now and then. My dad was in town a couple weeks back, and we put it on when he was here. Um, Hello, Dolly. Okay, so it's an old film and uh, mu- mu- musical. But there's that line that Dolly Levi says. Uh, she goes, money, pardon the expression, is like manure. It's not worth a thing unless it's spread around encouraging young things to grow. There's a responsibility, a spiritual responsibility that comes along with it. So here, we could ask ourselves this question. We could make it a part of our conversation with God. We could talk to God. God, what is the theological or spiritual significance of my wealth position? God, what's the spiritual responsibility, the theological responsibility associated with my wealth position? I think the second thing we could say then is uh, uh, that we can draw from Scripture is that the Bible attacks injustices not necessarily economic systems. The Bible doesn't make an argument for one economic system over another. The Bible doesn't come out and go, hey, you should all be socialists, or you should all be capitalists, or you should all be Marxists. The Bible doesn't make an argument for that. But the Bible consistently makes arguments against injustices and for compassion and generosity. Here's the one thing that all economic systems share in common. Human depravity. Human depravity. There's no way around it. There's a sinfulness built into humanity. Uh, and, and because of that, that no matter what economic system we have, there will be this wealth and poverty and disparity and, 
in people being guilty of the very things that James writes. And we also know that Christians are born into all kinds of economic systems. And, and that this passage is intended for all Christians, no matter what their economic system might be. And so God's instructions are consistent. Represent Jesus. Be compassionate. Care for one another. When I was in my mid-40s, it was the first time I had to start wearing glasses. Um, and first it was the cheaters, you know, the things you just buy at, the, at, at CVS or Walgreens. And I would have those so I could read things. And, and now <laughs> I wear trifocals, you know, that um, I just need to have all the different little lenses to be able to see. And, and if we're in a position where we have more than what we need to live on, and so our wealth position is higher, it's as though we need to have these new glasses on so that we can see the injustices. That, the, that the, uh, the world goes along their own set of values, but God wants us to see the injustices that we might be responding to them. Um, my mom lives out in San Diego, and um, I, you know she uh, lives in this small apartment and um, uh, uh, lives on a small, small income. But you know what she does? She's adopted this one uh, um, uh, beach community, and especially the the homeless that live in that beach community. And when I've been out to see her and walking down the street, that, that these people, she knows these people. She connects with these people. She relates to them. She has eyes to see them in their situation. And she's not going to solve homelessness in general. She's not going to change an economic system, but she's going to address an injustice one person at a time. Maybe we could talk with God about, God, what economic injustices would you have me address? God, what economic injustices would you have me use my wealth position, uh, position to make a difference in in this world? And the third thing that we could say is that our relationship with wealth reveals our hearts. Our relationship with wealth reveals our hearts and impacts our relationships. We see this in the text. We see that the wealth position of these people, that, they, that their hearts were being revealed in the decisions that they were making, and it was impacting the way they connected with others. We've talked about it before, in that as Christians we live a cruciform life, that, that we have this relationship with God, but it's intended to be a part and guide and instruct our relationship with others, that, that our relationship with God is not separated from our relationship with others, and that our relationship with others come under our relationship with God. And so our relationship with wealth reveals our hearts and impacts our relationship. And so sometimes wealth can be like middle school all over again, or at least the stereotypical middle school environment. So I'm sure if you're in middle school, your school's nothing like this, but the stereotypical one. You know, where there's that in group and the person you want to hang out with, but in order to hang out with that person or be a part of that group, you can't hang out with these people. And so you, that temptation of letting go, I'm going to not, because I really want to hang out with, with that crew. And God says, listen, listen, I want your heart. 
and I want your heart, and you can't just love, you can't love wealth and, and love these folks the way I want you to. So I want you to love these folks. So would you hold your wealth loosely and use your wealth position to, to build these redemptive relationships? So maybe we can ask God, God, reveal my self-indulgent ways to me and increase my care for others. We began our conversation recalling experiences of luxury and experiences of poverty and understanding that there's this disparity. And, and we're not here today to say, you know, what's the solution to poverty? And even Jesus said, hey, you're always going to have the poor. The poor will always be with you. So our passage doesn't provide an answer to poverty, but you know what it does? It provides a solution to wealth. It's, it supplies, the Bible supplies a solution to wealth. And so in our text, it comes in a form of a, well, a warning. Self-indulgent use of wealth leads to weeping, wailing, and ultimate misery. So the solution is this. Use wealth to bless. Use wealth to represent the love of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you're the God who, um, whose economy matters the most. And Father, I know I stand here as one who um, uh, has a particular wealth position in this world. Whether I'm part of the 1% or the top 10% or the top 60%, I am very cognizant that there are many people who are living on far less than I am. God, you want my heart. You want me. You want all of me. And you want me to represent you in this world. And so give all of us wisdom. God, wherever we have chosen in self-indulgent ways, wherever we've gone the way of culture and, and built kingdoms for ourselves and, and defended our entitlements, would you capture our hearts anew? Give us the vision to see the opportunities and the ways that we can be a part of your justice in this world. We're so thankful for the love that you share. May our love toward others give you glory. In Christ's name, amen.